You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. I'm quite an introverted person and I don't always want to go to parties and I don't want to be turned into a bat as a punishment for it. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome best-selling author of Ariadne, Jennifer Saint, onto the show. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. We are so thrilled to have you here. I'm, I'm really excited to be on. I did. I wanted to say like that this is one that I've been looking forward to the most because I listened to your podcast all the way through lockdown. And I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing it because it really kept me company, especially when I was at homeschooling my children and um, couldn't bear to speak to anybody else. It was so nice to be able to put on your podcast and listen to it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. We're so happy that we got to keep you company during that time. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening to us. Oh, that's, that's just so kind. <laughs> so here's the thing, listeners. We know that this episode is made up of a Jen, a Jenny, and a Jennifer. Are you Jennifer or Jenny, which do you prefer? Um, well, I thought I should probably be Jennifer for this anyway, because I'm, you know, I've got a different name. Do you go by Jenny sometimes? Yeah, I do. I'm usually Jenny. Yeah, same. I'm also usually Jenny. So we absolutely love the book Ariadne. It's a reimagining of both Ariadne and Phaedra's stories, featuring Theseus, who we all know hands down is the worst, and our favorite god of choice, Dionysus. And we just loved being able to escape into this richly developed world that uh, Jennifer built. I think it's not unfair to say that um, Dionysus is the patron god of this podcast, officially. I think so. I mean, Bendis sometimes, and we haven't even talked about Aphrodite. I mean, they're absolutely close friends of the podcast. They're supporters. So we just, we were so thrilled when Jennifer agreed to come on and talk to us about Ariadne and writing and about some of the history and research she did. So we're just going to jump straight into the interview questions. When you started researching Ariadne, were there any assumptions that you had about Ariadne or Phaedra? And how did writing this book make you see them differently? If if it did at all, maybe it didn't. Yeah, I think um, so. With those two, with the two main characters, Ariadne and Phaedra, um, I think I didn't have 
a huge amount of pre-existing ideas, particularly about Ariadne's character and personality. Um, because I knew what she did and I knew what her story was. I didn't feel that um, I'd really read an account that made me necessarily kind of understand a lot more about who she was rather than what it was that she did. Um, so, I mean, the one that came across most clearly that kind of really gave her her voice is obviously her letter to Theseus in the Heroides, where you really get a sense of her anger and her pride in her position and her status and who she is and how that, you know, feeds into her rage that Theseus has treated her like this. So I, I think that was what I had um, for Ariadne. So for her, it seemed less like a case of kind of challenging things I already knew about her and more a case of filling in a lot of blanks and finding out who she might have been and who I wanted her to be in this novel. Um, for Phaedra, again, um, I knew her from the Heroides and also from the Euripides play Hippolytus. Um, so those were two things that I'd studied before, which was really my introduction to Phaedra's character. And I think what I knew of her from Ovid's portrayal was really how intelligent she was, how she was somebody who could really like put forward a, a very persuasive case, who was, you know, very expert in rhetorical devices. But when I went back and revisited that letter, because those are things I remembered from studying it at university, and I think like we looked at it as a persuasive text. And when I went back and, and read it again, I think coming back to Phaedra, what really struck me about that was like, yes, it's a very well composed letter. You get a sense of her as this very bold woman, you know, who's who is she's declaring her love for her stepson. Um, she's not afraid to go against the, you know, the conventions of the time. She's not afraid to do the shocking thing. She calls out the gods for behaving so much worse. And um, so I think you really get a sense of her being kind of rebellious as well. But I also thought going back to it that she comes across in that as somebody who is trying to present like a, an argument for why somebody should fall in love with her and that's really not how love works and that really sent me down a rabbit hole of thinking well she is married to Theseus so what does she know about love you know kind of what's kind of happened to her emotional intelligence along the way enduring being the wife of Theseus for so many years it's not surprising really so that I think kind of opened a door to why she did behave the way that she did I felt it kind of gave me gave me the idea of her as somebody who yes is intelligent and bold and rebellious and passionate but also somebody who perhaps doesn't really understand relationships so well and in the Euripides play in Hippolytus, she's presented so sympathetically. And that's something that, um, you know, I only became more sympathetic with Phaedra as I as I developed her as a character. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to like Phaedra as much as I liked her, but I really, oh, I felt for her so much. Um, do you feel that um, writing about these women's lives gave you a window into what the lives of women in ancient Greece or, you know, maybe Minoan Greece uh, were like? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, that immersing myself in their world just really reinforced me how as much as, um, and I think like the way that Ovid presents them and the way that I wanted to present them is women who have a really powerful sense of their own agency and what they want their destiny to be. But in the world that they live in, they are pretty much powerless to control that. This is a world very much run by men for men and trying to piece together their lives made me see how few options that they really had and I think that was something that only only kind of intensified 
as I went further into it. And I was as shocked as well, though, because I, w- I was expecting that because, you know, this is the ancient world. This is the Bronze Age. It's a misogynistic society. It's patriarchy. But I would always say with this novel, I, mean, I don't think that I would have written the same novel before the Me Too movement. And I think that something that really came across to me was that although this is a different society and women's lives were obviously in many ways a lot worse, there are a shocking number of parallels um, in terms of the misogynistic attitudes and in particular the victim blaming. So it wasn't completely alien, unfortunately. I think that when I was not just looking at Ariadne and Phaedra's stories, but the stories that they were told about other women, I tried to weave in as, as many of the myths as I could into, into the main narrative. You know, the, the major one that I included is that Ariadne has told the story of Medusa. And I feel like Medusa was kind of brought into the Me Too discourse. I know that I definitely saw things about her things like the statue that was put up on Wall Street, that some people were saying, this is amazing because here is a victim of sexual assault and she's standing there really powerfully kind of calling everybody to account. Is this the one, just for people who haven't seen it, is this the one where Medusa is holding the head of Perseus? Yeah, it's, it's like a very kind of vengeful statement to make. And the fact that it was put in the financial district in this kind of centre of male power, I guess, you know, reinforces that. Um, and I, I saw a lot of conversation about it and some people took issue with the way that she's presented, like she's very kind of beautiful and perfect looking. And there was a lot of discussion I saw about what does a victim have to be like for us to sympathise with her? I felt that that was something that we're discussing now. And it's something that we're discussing when we look back at ancient myths. I just feel that Medusa seems to be a very relevant figure today in terms of how we treat women who suffer that kind of assault, which is, we know from the Me Too movement, an awful lot of women. And I think we probably all know women who have been through that kind of situation and been treated in that way. And, you know, she is literally monstered, but that's something that happens in a more metaphorical way all the time and is still happening. I think I felt so angry seeing this huge movement, this huge swell of Me Too, Me Too, Me Too, and thinking also, them to things haven't changed enough in 3,000 years and I really think that um, inspired a lot of what I was writing and the kind of stories I chose to include and the way that I chose to present them Um, and she's really having a moment right now and I've got the a proof of the Jessie Burton novel about Medusa. I've got Anne Wynkaya's novel about Medusa. Rosie Hewlett has um, just run, won an award for her book about Medusa. Natalie Haynes has got a book coming out. So I think that everybody is very interested in her right now. I think what really opened my eyes to this was that, you know, seminal Myths Baby episode on her because the story we know about Medusa is that she turns people to stone and that Perseus kills her and cuts off her head and there's a mirror like this is my very general non-informed understanding of that story yeah I mean you're not wrong that that is how the story is and what's awful about it in a lot of ways is I feel like her head is like a wedding present for a guy who wants to marry his mom like it's a horrible story Liv's episode was one of the first things I heard that critically looked at it and I was like man I never knew about the Poseidon bit because I'd always followed the sort of line where she was born a Gorgon. I didn't really know about the um, the myth where essentially Medusa in some mythology was a priestess of Athena and Poseidon he um, he rapes her and as a result Athena because she can't get back at Poseidon gets back at Medusa and turns her into a Gorgon. 
who turns people into stone. I mean, this is a lot of the ways that female goddesses behave in ancient Greek mythology, particularly when they can't express their rage at men. It tends to be expressed against the women who were a lot of times not willing sexual participants. Yeah, like I think that's such a really good point about how in Greek mythology, and we see it in in different aspects of history about different women being turned on each other. And I think that's really a key aspect of how patriarchy works. Let's get back to the book. Uh, So, Jenny, what research did you do to get into the world of Minoan Crete? So what I would say, first of all, is like I am absolutely not a historian. So, I mean, I, I read classical studies for my degree, but my focus was always on the mythology. And so, you know, I know the stories and... Um, I don't know so much about the actual kind of physical history, which is is one of the reasons that I really love your podcast, because I learned so many things. But recreating Minoan and Crete, I really had to work to, um, because to, I would sit down to write and then I would think, hang on, I don't know, I don't know, like, where are they? What are they wearing? What are they doing? What are they eating? There's so many things I don't know before I can write this, you know, one tiny paragraph trying to set the scene. I have to go and read for about an hour to work out what the scene actually is. This is something I faced as well. This is why I started a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's like it's 3,000 years ago and what survives is all in, in fragments. It's all in ruins and, and little bits. So I had a really strong sense of the atmosphere because I think that's what comes across from the stories, from the mythology. But yeah, putting the physical details in. And I know that you had a proof copy and I know that there were uh, there were a couple of like really major mistakes in the proof copy, copy that I um, fixed before it went out. So I was like, oh no, <laughs> that, would, that would go to people who probably would be able to spot that. Um, I mean, so- us? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I was fixing things right right up until the end. Um, there's like some frantic emails just before it all went to print. So I did things like I went back to Homer quite a lot. So, you know, not necessarily specifically like I'm talking about Minoan Crete, but what I did was like to go back and read the Odyssey to get more of a sense of kind of domestic settings of what palaces because that's a really good thing in the Odyssey as well. There tends to be like great long lists of things. And I was going to say that's Homer's thing. <laughs> yeah you'll get kind of ideas about materials and textures and colors and all the rest of it and it's so interesting like if you I had a couple of different translations and so you get different ideas from even different translations of the same text and the other like major source of inspiration visually particularly was in the British Museum and so I was writing pre-pandemic when obviously it was much easier to go I don't I don't live in London I live in the north of England but my sister's in London and I would go down and I always like to go to the British Museum I took my kids my youngest was absolutely horrified about how much was broken there it's like how can they put all this stuff on display it's all broken it's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) things tend to get broken over the eons (laughs) funny enough (laughs) just happens (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah um but you know they've got a whole they have a whole section on Minoan and crete and even um also, they've got the Mycenaean cabinet, which um, I have been looking at online over the past year while I've been writing my second novel, and um, because you can you can see their collection online if you can't actually get there, and that's so helpful to actually see some physical objects and artifacts. And you know, whenever there's something that actually exists, I lifted it and put it in the novel because I was like, well, if it's actually there, then um, I will I will use it. So that 
that's what I did. And then um, I couldn't visit um, the site of Canossus, but again, you can you can take virtual tours. And, you know, I think seeing like um, so much of the, where you see like the red columns um, of the palace of Canossus, and I found things like that so helpful in terms of bringing it to life in colour, because obviously so many of the statues and things that we have, you know, they've, they've lost all the paint. There is so much where things are well preserved. It's just a, a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. Canossus is one of my favourite places in the world. I've been before. Uh, we're planning to go again. And I just love it. I just love I just love old things. You did dig into the Minoan culture. And I totally understand, you know, this feeling of being completely overwhelmed by the history, because I'm also trying to write a historical novel, which um, <clears throat> is not as historical as I would like it to be. Um, and <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's an occasionally <laughs> true story. And I think people people have different feelings about that, because I know people who are really, you know, they want every historical novel that they read to be absolutely 100% true. And I'm more of a, um, if, if you're drawing me into the story, and I don't notice things that are too egregious, or for some reason, I've been persuaded to accept a world where things are a mix of history and fantasy, then I really don't mind. Readers will be generous with you sometimes. I will. <laughs> your, your book has lots of different characters from mythology, including Ariadne, Phaedra, Pasiphae, Daedalus. Dionysus and Theseus. Which character did you find the most surprising to write about? Well, probably the character I was actually most surprised about when I was like researching what I was going to do with all the characters, and um, probably it was actually Minos. So the first thing I did when I started researching was to get out the Oxford Classical Dictionary that I used during my degree, and um, I went to all the main characters. And one of the main things it said about Minos was the myth about him and Scylla not Scylla from the Odyssey with the dog said that the the girl um, in the kingdom of Megara, the princess who betrays her father because she falls in love with Minos and then the way that he treats her, which is the prologue of the novel. If anyone doesn't know how he treats her, how does he treat her? Yeah, sorry, spot the person who's not a podcaster. Um, so Minos invades her kingdom just because he can. Um, I mean, why not? And her father is invincible. He has this magical lock of purple hair. And as long as he has that lock of hair, he can't be killed. But his daughter falls in love with Minos and she decides to betray her father and to tell Minos, just cut his hair and you'll be able to kill him. So he does. But he takes advantage of the information that he's so disgusted by the fact that this woman would betray her father that then he ties her to the back of his boat and drowns her as he sails away. That was the most kind of shocking thing I think that I discovered. And so I put it into the prologue of the novel because not only is it really horrific, but what I knew about Minos before was that he, after he died, he became a judge in the underworld. So I was expecting him to be this kind of model of righteousness, though obviously he does go on to demand a sacrifice of 14 Athenian children to feed to the Minotaur. So I knew there were issues with his character, but that one was such a kind of calculated, cruel act. And to me, it served as well as such a kind of microcosm of the whole story that I was telling and such a clear warning to Ariadne. And it really set the stakes for Ariadne's decision later. You know, she knows what kind of a man her father is. And so it makes that decision that she then faces, should she help Theseus, should she put an end to the slaughter? It really makes that a more difficult decision to make. That is so fascinating. This is another sort of instance of the patriarchy asserting itself because the way that ancient Greeks may have seen this was 
a woman going against the man who was her curios, the head of her household, to help another man who was against that man, but whom she had chosen to be with. You know, like women choosing who to be with as opposed to, you know, just marrying whoever their parents tell them to or whoever their culture tells them to or whatever seems to be a really strong destabilizing thread that runs through all of these myths. And I can see, even if you take Minos as this model of righteousness, in an ancient Greek framework, I can see that fitting as horrible as it is. And, and that's just to say how horrible it is, not to say that what he did was right. Because he's reinforcing the patriarchy. He's saying, you know, if this is a woman who will go against the man who is her master, then she obviously cannot be trusted and she has no morality, even though she helped me this time. But it's also a, a pastist prologue, isn't it? Like, Minos had the help of this daughter of a king to overthrow the king and take all his stuff. And what happens? His own daughter does the same thing. So it's like, Theseus abandoning her on an island, maybe it's not as bad as what her dad would have done to her, you know? Maybe, like, hey, Theseus isn't the worst. Like, you can kind of see that in the Athenian propaganda of justifying Theseus. It's like, look what Minos did. So, like, Theseus wasn't so bad. Because a lot of the myths that we have about Theseus come down through an Athenian lens, which is he is their hero and they're trying to make him good. And how do they do that by making Minos worse? Yeah. So in your book, Noxos becomes a refuge for women fleeing the oppressive patriarchy of ancient Minoan culture. What gave you the inspiration to turn Naxos into a safe harbor for women? Well, I think it was kind of, I suppose, it was writing wish fulfillment because I'd written all of this stuff in the novel up to that point about women's suffering. And something that I think I remember from listening to one of your older podcast episodes, probably, um, I think when you were talking about the worship of Bacchus in Roman times, about that really providing a role for women and an escape for women. And so that was an idea that I'd come across before as well, that perhaps this was kind of a root out of these very limited options available to women in this culture in this time. That if you didn't want to be married off, if you didn't want to kind of, you know, just be a mother and your role is just to produce more children, then maybe becoming a priestess or following a god in this way, that was an escape. And there seemed to be so much for women to escape from. And it was, I think, something I wanted to put in the novel to give these women just the opportunity to exercise some agency, whether that's something that, you know, could have been an option. I don't know that women really could have decided to just sail off to Naxos and live there in this kind of idyllic, sort of, I guess, like Amazonian kind of fantasy of freedom. But I wanted to put it in the novel. I wanted that to be a thing that could have happened and was an option for them. And it it was a way that made my ads kind of make sense to me as well is, as something that I could put into the book, that they have got so much to escape from, so much reason to leave their homes. Obviously, like I gave, I gave one of them a more detailed backstory about why a woman might want to do that. And as well, there's kind of this older Minoan myths about Ariadne that sort of, I mean, we've, I think I've talked about chronology with Liv on her podcast as well, and how when it comes to mythology, chronology is a fruitless task, and all the myths exist at all these different times. And there are much more ancient myths about Ariadne that I, I mixed into kind of later ones. And she was worshipped, you know, she is a Minoan goddess and um, with kind of these connections to women, motherhood, fertility and so on. And so I liked the idea that, you know, perhaps she was kind of presiding over this island where women could go and form this supportive community. I think that that's, that's not completely unrepresented in the history. I mean, if you think about how many cultures have religious orders of women. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Dionysus is is portrayed in the book as well. I really loved how you recreated the um, rituals and there was a certain rawness to that. And I like that aspect of it because we'd done so much studying of Dionysus. And I guess my question is, what are your feelings about recreating ancient rituals like that? Well, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because so much about rituals is i mean so many of them are mystery cults and you know therefore mysterious and so there's there's so much that we don't know and i think that i drew probably most actually from donatart's the secret history so you know a much more like a contemporary novel because in that this group of students try to recreate dionysian rituals and she does it in such a chilling creepy way and that was really the atmosphere that I was trying to create for the the rituals in the woods so actually that was probably drawing on a more modern source rather than an ancient one for the feeling of it and because what the ancient sources describe about what the women do in those woods with the goats and so on it is so horrifying and I wanted it to feel like a horror movie kind of moment. As well, I really drew on, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the episode with the daughters of Minias, and I went and had another look back at that, because that is incredibly creepy and eerie, that they're these three women who reject the worship of Dionysus, and they sit there telling stories instead of going out and participating in the, is it a festival or, or something that's going on? And he punishes them, and it's twilight falls, these vines start to grow, and then slowly he transforms them into bats. And that I realised I had drawn on that more than I even realised because I had the vines growing when Dionysus arrives on Naxos. And I thought, oh, I think I took that from the Metamorphoses. I think this is the other thing about trying to pick out inspiration is that not being an academic, all of my research is incredibly convoluted and scattered and like I write things down and I forget to even write down where I got them from. And also sometimes a scene from the novel will come out of like maybe one line that I've spotted somewhere and then that'll kind of give the inspiration for a whole sort of episode in the novel. But I definitely remember trying to recreate that sort of atmosphere where there's that that creeping menace of Dionysus when he's vengeful, when he's angry. He's definitely not somebody that you would want to be on that side of him. Yeah, and you're absolutely right what you're picking up about Dionysus. is There is an eeriness. There's like a an old, like kind of seminal, raw, like older than humanity creepiness that goes on when he's crossed, you know, and it's it's about madness. It's about growing things and decay. And it's hard to express in words. But yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorite things about the novel was that we got to see the lives of two very different women. Ariadne, who sort of chooses to live away from the world, she secrets herself on the island of Naxos, she trusts her husband, she finds comfort in motherhood and sort of making the island her own sanctuary. And Phaedra, who is forced to interact with the outside world, and she has to deal with being married to Theseus, 
And she has to find her place in a foreign, you know, a foreign city that is kind of hostile to her because their people were fed to her brother. That's that's valid. <laughs> I, I mean, I think she also in the novel agrees that it's valid. Phaedra doesn't find comfort in being the mother of the future kings of Athens. She struggles with this. Do you feel like this may have been a common or uncovered aspect of life for a lot of women in ancient Greece? Yeah. And um, so two of the major relationships kind of themes that I wanted to explore in the novel were sisterhood and motherhood you know I didn't just want to look at these women in relation to the men that define their stories I like I did want to explore the other kind of relationships that they had and um when it came to motherhood I definitely wanted to explore how they could have had really quite different experiences of, of being mothers so I've got children and I chose to have children and so you know I I love my children, I love being a mother, but it is still hard. And even in the modern age, even with all the, you know, medical advancements that we have, there's still so many difficulties around it. You know, there's still postnatal depression, birth trauma, dealing with sleep deprivation, all of these things that can happen when you have children, that if you have control over your fertility and you have chosen who you want to have your children with, then these are easier things. Well, not always. I certainly don't want to say they're easy to deal with. But when I was thinking about women in the ancient world, when I imagined facing those kind of difficulties, but you have no control over whether or not you're going to have children or very little control, you know, you might not be able to choose how many children you have, how to space out your children. I imagined the pressure and the suffering and the fear that would go along with it because it was such a dangerous experience for women to go through pregnancy and birth. So um, infant mortality and child mortality was so high. So you could go through all of that and then suffer the agony of losing your children. And it, that comes up in so many myths, um, you know, that I think like the kind of the, the loss of children and the effect that that has on people. And, you know, I th it wouldn't be an easy road to walk for a lot of women and there wouldn't be any understanding of surely women would experience postnatal depression, but there was no terminology for it. Would there necessarily be any support for it? If you are somewhere like Ariadne is on Naxos, where there is a community of women around you to support you and help you, maybe you'll be fine. But if you are someone like Phaedra in a hostile city where there's this history of their citizens being fed to your family and so on, then and you're incredibly isolated and your children are Theseus's children. And, you know, maybe your sons have got Theseus's features. Motherhood then becomes something incredibly challenging and difficult to deal with and it really made sense to me to see Phaedra in that way um, and I didn't want to just present you know an entirely negative view of it because I imagine for a lot of women children would be their comfort would would be a fulfilling purpose in life but definitely not for everybody and so I thought having the two sisters experience it in different ways would be a really interesting balance to strike. Yeah, I love that about the book, because I think even now it's kind of taboo to say that you don't enjoy motherhood if you're a mother. And a lot of women have experiences that are not just the sort of unmitigated joy that we're all expected to feel. I mean, I'm I'm child free. I didn't want to have kids. And um, I have friends who have children and a lot of them, even the ones that absolutely love it, don't love it all the time. And for some, it's been a lot more difficult than for others. And I've seen how hard it is to even admit that you have those feelings. She's a really complicated person. And 
I think some of the way she feels about her children is tied up in the fact that, you know, Theseus kind of sold her on a tale. And as she unravels his tales, as everyone does with Theseus, it's very difficult to take those feelings away. What are his children going to be if they're raised on these tales of this great hero who's actually like kind of a serial killer and a wanton woman abandoner? You know, that's got to be something going through her head. Like, especially, you know, I'm an immigrant to the UK. I don't have kids, maybe one day, maybe not. But it is one of those things where when you think about it and you think about what you're going to raise your kids with or the stories and mythology that you have, it's so different even from places that are similar in some ways, America and the UK. It's very different. The the stories that you tell, the things that you value, if you're going to give that to a child, how does that work? Like you don't see her getting a chance to think about, I'm going to teach my child these Cretan cultural things. It's all about her changing to adapt into the culture she has come to, which is Athenian culture and raising her boys to be Athenian boys. It's nice to see that experience reflected because that was a huge thing for a lot of women, particularly, you know, we think Ah, princesses had it easy, and they definitely had it easier than some. But a lot of times, they would be married off somewhere foreign, and this is what they'd have to deal with. I think one thing that really comes across in our research about um, Athenian culture in particular was how xenophobic it was, and how many laws that there were basically persecuting marriages that were between a foreigner and a citizen. There were parts, you know, periods in history where, as I understand it, those marriages were illegal. And you see things like threads in the mythology, like in Medea and other myths, where the wife being foreign was a big deal. Yeah, I think, um, like you you mentioning Medea, that was one of the things that I I remembered so vividly about um, learning about Medea, about studying Medea as a character, that that's where so much of it comes from in the play, that she's a barbarian and she's so similar to Ariadne's story. She achieved Jason's feats for him. She did all the work. He didn't have to do anything, but took all the glory. But then she is lesser. She is inferior. She is treated with suspicion because she's come from this other place where they are witches or, um, you know, not to be trusted or whatever it is. Well, she didn't just betray her father. She also cut up her brother into little pieces. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, of course. I mean, look, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Medea, but I, you know, the brother cutting up, was it necessary? No, Jen, because they had to stop and pick up the pieces. Come on. I know. I know. (laughs) She did a few worse things. Um, no, well, I, I struggle with her, you know, murdering her own children as well. Like, I don't, I don't find her a straightforwardly unproblematic character. And this is the reason I'm never going to write, you know, a Medea novel. But, but yeah, but there are parallels. And I really remembered that kind of aspect of the xenophobia really playing into the treatment of her and kind of why Jason feels completely justified in, you know, just jettisoning her, right? So I think I really had that in mind writing Phaedra in Athens, that not only is she is she a woman in a patriarchal society, but she's also a foreigner to the city and also kind of an enemy to the city. I mean, based on how often he was off getting trapped in the underworld and just seducing and being just the worst, he was busy just not being... I kind of feel like he reminds me a lot of like Odysseus, who like is another problematic fave, but he's not around a lot. The person doing all the actual ruling is Penelope. And when he gets back, he gets like itchy feet almost immediately. He's like, oh yeah, 
it's been great, but you know what I could do? <laughs> in Phaedra's case, another thing I liked is that she went about trying to be involved and trying to work with the men who are ruling while Theseus is out, being a hero or whatever he was doing. She proactively tried to find her place there. Yeah, and I found it quite satisfying to imagine, you know, really for my own kind of invention of these characters, kind of how I wanted them to be in the novel. But I found it really satisfying to think that maybe she did a lot of the work that Theseus was later credited with. So I kind of had her establishing all of these great things in Athens that um, I think Theseus, in the sort of legends, he's supposed to be the founder. But I thought maybe it was Phaedra, maybe she did all the hard work and he just basked in the glory. And that's a thing I wonder if that was part of women's lives in this part of the ancient world at this time, too. Not being credited with things so it doesn't come down to us. But the guys are off doing war stuff a lot. So somebody's got to govern when that's happening. I think like all I'd add to that is that kind of taking stories from a male narrative and flipping it so it's female driven narrative. It's a really fun thing to do as a writer because you have got so much room um, to invent things and to fill in the gaps because that female perspective is absent a lot of the time. So it gives you a lot more freedom. Yeah, there's not as many as many stories detailing exactly what Phaedra was doing while Theseus was off or what Ariadne was doing on Naxos. So you have the ability to craft a really rich world, whereas like kind of know what Theseus was doing on his way to get to Athens because it's been very well described to us. So this question is a little spoilery. It's about Dionysus. So one of the things that I love about Dionysus is that, number one, he makes just the most epic of all entrances when he meets Ariadne. But he's so very different from Theseus, and you work really hard to show them as being very different characters. Do you want to talk about how you crafted him there? Or do you want to talk about that and also the spoiler, which is, as the story goes on, Dionysus kind of subverts to the patriarchy. He takes a turn. No, that's right. I mean, I think, like, I have I have talked about it a little bit, that, yeah, his, his character does change. I'll try, I'll phrase things as carefully as I can and try not to give too much away. Bringing him into the novel after Theseus's abandonment of Ariadne, after we've realised really how terrible a man Theseus is, bringing Dionysus into the novel just felt like such a great tone shift. And so it was really nice to, you know, just really fun to write that section and to bring in some magic and to write a god into the story. And I love the story of how he shows up on Naxos, that he has kind of tricked these slavers into kidnapping him and then he turns the tables on them. So all of that, I just, it felt like just a really great way to bring some much needed light into the novel. Um, You know, Greek myth is so, so drenched in tragedy and suffering and horror that when you can take a character like Dionysus, um, it's really satisfying to do that. And he's, I mean, he's just so interesting. And like you said, he's like, he's the patron god of your podcast with good reason. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Praise Dio. (laughs) Praise Dio. (laughs) So, I mean, I found that probably harder to write than you're trying to create like a really charismatic, intriguing, seductive character. And in some ways, it's easier to write somebody like Theseus, who is awful. But I really enjoyed it. And I think that... You know, I would hope that it really came across that he's somebody that Ariadne can actually fall in love with and that he is different to the other men that she's known so far. 
But he's still an Olympian god and there are still some very dark stories about Dionysus. And I think that he seemed to me to be somebody who, yes, he's great when things are going his way, but he, like the other Olympian gods, he wants what the gods have got. He does want worship and he does want power and he does want his ego to be massaged. And when people choose not to, like I, I talked about the daughters of Minyas, who really are not doing anything that merits the punishment that he inflicts upon them. We're just going to sit here and not bother anyone. Like they were just like, we're going to keep spinning wool or something. It was something bizarre, right? Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 no. Come party. <laughs> yeah. And they just don't want to. And But you also don't want to be devoured by vines and turned into a bat. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's absolutely something we talked about in our episodes about about Dionysus. It it really is like worship me or else. Yeah, exactly. And I'm quite an introverted person and I don't always want to go to parties and I don't want to be turned into a bat as a punishment for it. So, yeah. And then obviously the Bacchae, what happens to Pentheus, what happens to those women of Argos? You know, when Dionysus is angry, his punishments are so brutal and so very calculated to cause maximum suffering and you talked about Dionysus being associated with madness and I guess it's kind of the two sides to that there's that kind of really joyful madness and I suppose I mean this is like he's he's the god of of wine and, and drinking and it's like those two sides to it where you know everything is so much fun and you're having a great time with Dionysus but then there is that violent much more frightening out of control side and I definitely wanted to portray both of those. And, you know, that the whole novel is really about how women can survive in this very patriarchal world. And there is nothing more patriarchal than the structure of the Olympian gods. You know, even the, the goddesses, uh, the women, they are absolutely acting in service of patriarchy all the time as well. So I couldn't really give Dionysus a free pass. It reminds me what you were talking about with the madness. Jenny, do you remember the quote you had about Dionysus at the symposium? Yeah, so there's a very uh, fragmentary play from ancient classical Greece. But the point is that there is a scene at a symposium. So basically, there would be these giant cauldrons of wine called craters, and you would mix the wine with water. There would be this person called a symposiarch, who is kind of the master of ceremonies. And that person was in charge of mixing wine and water in the crater to decide what kind of a party it is. Is this the kind of party where we're all just going to stay up and debate philosophical concepts until dawn? Or is this the kind of party that devolves into debauchery and madness? And there was this amazing quote from this symposium in this play where Dionysus was the symposiarch and he was in charge of mixing the wine and the water. And he was explaining to people his crater management strategy where he's he said, I don't have it in front of me, but the first crater is for joy and laughter. And the second crater is for long conversations. And the third crater is for departing and having a nice night and passing out and going to bed. And then he said, and then the next craters are not mine anymore. And those are the craters that the fifth and sixth and seventh are the craters of depression and violence and madness and all that stuff. It's a pretty great quote. That's so Dionysus in a party. Like, you always know when you're like, stop. Stop with the wine or the margaritas. You will be a happy bunny now. If you continue with the wine or the margaritas, I don't know which way it will tip, but it may not tip in the way you want it to. Don't look at me because those aren't my craters. But I actually, I would debate that. I think those are very much Dionysus's craters. They are his craters. Oh, they are. 
I feel like they are, yeah. <laughs> so this episode will probably come out in February, or maybe not, maybe sooner. We're still setting the schedule for our new season, but we want to talk a little bit about Electra and what you can tell us. So first off, Ariadne will be out very soon in paperback. No, Ariadne will be out in February of 22 in paperback. So go pick up your copy of Ariadne now. If you have not read it, you should read it. It's really good. Very enjoyable. But if you have read it and you're like, what is Jennifer Saint writing next? We have a little teaser for you. We're going to ask a couple questions about her new book, Electra, which will be out in May 2022, which you can pre-order now. So Jennifer, what can you tell us about Electra? Electra is my second novel and it tells the story of the women whose lives are shattered by Agamemnon. So it has three narrators like Ariadne has Ariadne and Phaedra. Electra tells the story from Clytemnestra's point of view, from Cassandra's point of view, and from Electra's point of view. So it spans a vast amount of time and um, some very different experiences of Agamemnon and very different attitudes towards him. And it's another, obviously, a story from the female perspective of the women in mythology. And I think quite different in tone from Ariadne, but with some similar ideas as well. So what what drew you to this story? So what I find when I'm thinking of writing a novel is that a scene will kind of come into my head fully formed and I think I really want to write that scene and then I think, okay, I want to write the novel. And with Ariadne, it was the scene where she's abandoned on Naxos. That was, that was so clear in my mind and then I thought, right, okay, I'm going to write the whole novel around this. And another kind of really significant scene in Greek mythology that really captures my imagination and something I've always wanted to write about is what happens to Iphigenia, the sacrifice of Iphigenia. She was really my starting point. And I was so interested in how, obviously, that, so Agamemnon has to or chooses to sacrifice his daughter in exchange for a fair wind to sail against Troy. That sets his wife, Clytemnestra, on this path of very destructive revenge and retribution and rage and it sets his other daughter his surviving daughter one of his surviving daughters Electra on a completely different path and I was so interested in how these two women go in such diverging directions from that because they're both women with whom I can feel this kind of really kind of core level of sympathy but then they take it to different places which are you know in Electra's case perhaps a little bit less understandable I found her the novel ended up being, you know, focusing on her, centering around her experience, because she seemed to me the most opaque of those three women. So obviously I didn't talk about Cassandra very much there, but um, Cassandra encounters Agamemnon in war. And it was Electra's experience that seemed the most opaque and the most kind of interesting to get into as a, as a writer to kind of figure out where on earth was she coming from? Why did she end up doing the kind of things that she did? She's such a kind of challenge and a mystery as a character. And so the novel ended up growing around her a lot more than I thought when I initially started with Iphigenia. I say it all the time. I love me a good ancient world soap opera and the story of the house of Atreus and um, Agamemnon and what happens to him and Clytemnestra and Electra and Cassandra. I mean, oh, it's all soap opera. So this is going to be so good and so rich for people to dig into. Um, what was it like 
Um, we've talked about uh, Electra and we've talked about Clytemnestra, but Cassandra is so different. She's from such a different culture to these people. What was it like sort of getting into her head and deciding to make her a narrator? Bringing Cassandra into it was really, so obviously, like you say, it, it's this huge saga, the story of, of, you know, that family. And it covers so much time. And for a lot of the time, Clytemnestra and Electra are kind of frozen in, in Mycenae, kind of not really able to move on until Agamemnon comes back. And all that time Agamemnon is in Troy. So I wanted to show what was happening there as well. And obviously, like, you know, I love the Iliad, but I really wanted to see the fall of Troy from the perspective of somebody in Troy rather than the Greeks invading. And I really wanted to see it from the perspective of somebody who knew how the tragedy was going to play out but was powerless to stop it. You know, again, she's such a brilliant character and her situation is so agonizingly painful that she can see this complete annihilation, this devastation of everything that she's ever known coming and she could prevent it, but nobody will listen to her. So I really enjoyed, well, I mean, enjoyed sounds like the wrong word. (laughs) It's a very dark story, Um, but I, you know, it was so good just to be on that side, I think, of the Trojan Walls to kind of see it um, happening from from within. And also I wrote a lot of it in lockdown. And so I think kind of writing about somebody in a besieged city unable to get out seemed to feel very relevant as well. The first episode of, of our podcast is called How to Survive a Siege. And it's all about the experience of being in a siege and being involved in a siege. And at the time, it just seemed like such a foreign completely different experience than anyone I knew had ever been through and it seemed like something that you know people in the ancient world just dealt with periodically and now I'm like yeah I'm not equating coronavirus with an actual physical siege but I can understand certain aspects of that like the danger outside and being stuck indoors and not being able to go anywhere and food shortages sometimes. And also the danger that happens inside, because so often a lot of sieges ended because disease broke out within the cities that were besieged because of poor sanitation, poor food, violence. Yeah, suddenly we're all closer to the ancients. It's not good. It's not a good sign. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Do you want to give a shout out to where people can find you on the web? Um, yeah, sure. So um, you can find me on Instagram, jennifer.saint.author, and I'm on Twitter at Jenny Saint. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's like a dream come true. You're welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for agreeing to come on and hang out with us. Right, Jenny. So do we want to do our sign off as well? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, for those of us who haven't figured out who we are by the time they've gotten to the end of this, we're Ancient History Fangirl. You can find us on Twitter at Ancient His Fan and on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And we have a Patreon should you like to kick some some funds our way. And the Patreon is patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl. And thank you so much for coming on, Jennifer Saint. And um, we so look forward to your next book. And um, this has been really fun. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>